You know, as um, we go through worship, it's interesting to me to see how songs relate to what we're going to talk about, to the scriptures, how music really impacts us. And we see it kind of in everywhere in life, right? Um, One of the things that I used to be a music buyer for a chain of Christian bookstores. And so it was my job to look at new music and figure out, okay, what are we going to buy and not going to buy? What's going to succeed? What's not going to succeed? Um, And sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong. But I found that over time that looking at pop music is a really interesting way for us to look and see what matters in the culture around us. It gives us a clue as to the things that we care about. And, of course, when it comes to pop music, what, what happens? You usually go back to your high school years because that's where the best music was. And it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what era you were at. It's high school that seems to define on some level. So as I was thinking about that this past weekend, in 1989, when I was a senior in high school, there was an R&B group called Callaway. They had one top ten hit. That's it. And that hit was called, I Want to Be Rich. And it starts with the the words, cold cash. That's what I need. And the refrain was particularly catchy. I want money. Lots and lots of money. I want that pie in the sky. I want money. Lots and lots of money. So don't be asking me why. I want to be rich. There's lots of repetition. It's not a terribly deep song. (laughs) But it does have the advantage of at least being fairly honest. There's this interesting notion in it, though. Because it refrains this, I want to be rich, I want to be rich kind of thought. But it repeats after that this line full of peace, love, and happiness. You see, the idea is if I get the money that I want, I will be full of peace, love, and happiness. My life will be complete. And Callaway was by no means the first or the last group in pop music to think about money like this. I did a, it's amazing what you can find on Google. And so I did a search of the top songs about money. And in 1948, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis had the money song. In 1960, Barrett Strong did the song Money, That's What I Want. And that song was redone by the Beatles and the Doors and Led Zeppelin and others. In 1973, the OJs sang for the love of money. And later groups, like Boys to Men, or Mark and the Funky Bunch, it was the 90s, okay, uh, made this song all about promoting money. And ironically, that song, the title came straight from 1 Timothy 6.10, just a few verses earlier than where we're going to be this morning. And it wasn't about promoting money at all. In 1983, Donna Summer sang She Works Hard for the Money. In 1997, Puff Daddy sang It's All About the Benjamins. Benjamin Franklin, $100 bills. 
and we could go on. There's a lot more of where that came from. It's this universal thing, right? We want money. And we seem to think that somehow it's going to fix all our problems. And so today as we continue our series in God We Trust, we're going to look at what are we really building our lives on? What is our foundation and can money really do this? So if you turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 17 to 19 today. And this is what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word to us, for the fact that you did not leave us without instructions for life. I pray that you would show us this morning a little bit of how we are to build our lives, the foundation we are to have. What does that mean for wealth? And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. (coughs) Talking about money is tricky, especially for Americans. I think maybe even especially for American Christians. You know, we're willing to deal with lots of stuff. We're willing to be called out on lots of stuff. But please leave my wallet alone. Right? And it's probably because basically all of us have work to do when it comes to money. I know I do. We don't like to admit it when we don't have enough because we don't want to be seen as being less. We don't want to admit that we're not handling it well. And sometimes we don't even want to admit how much that we have because we're afraid of how people will view us. Too little or too much can put you in a weird spot. And we don't want to deal with it. But Paul, in our passage today, is not messing around. And he has his sights set on money. He's encouraging Timothy in his role as an elder, as a pastor. And he's laying out instructions for ministry. For how he's supposed to teach the church at Ephesus. This is important stuff. And what does he say? Command those who are rich. Not a suggestion. Not, it would be nice if. But Paul wants Timothy to make sure that the people he ministers to understand these principles. And I think it's because money is so powerful. You see, it's not just powerful out there in the world around us. In giant economies or in business, but it's powerful in here, in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. Almost all of us think that we don't have enough money. And we certainly aren't rich, right? That's the way that we think about it. And so as I was preparing this week, I began to think, okay, What does it mean to be rich, to be wealthy? 
So I have a question. Titus, what's your favorite ice cream? Strawberry. Okay. When I was a kid, finding ice, the best ice cream around, I had to go out to Route 31 in Aurora. It was, it was a big-time treat. Because Overweiss didn't have franchises at that point. They didn't have places all over everywhere. There was one place. It was the dairy itself. And it was right on Route 31. And once in a great while, we got to go. Mint chocolate chip was my favorite when I was a kid. I don't know what your favorite is. There's lots of different kinds of things. But think about this when it comes to ice cream. Ice cream's been around for a long time in one form or another. In some cases, they think that it came from China. There's all kinds of, of, of interesting information out there, and there's all kinds of misinformation on the Internet. But probably, ice cream as we know it came around in the early to mid-1600s. And there was a king of France named Louis XIV. And Louis XIV loved to serve ice cream at summer parties. Because at the time, getting ice cream was tough. They had to harvest ice from the lakes and the rivers in the wintertime and store them in storehouses, sometimes underground, sometimes they, they built these elaborate things in, in stone or wood with sawdust in between the walls so that it would insulate. And he loved to serve ice cream in the summer at parties because it showed off how rich he was. And there wasn't a whole lot of versions of ice cream at the time. Maybe citrus flavored. Maybe a little else. But certainly not the variety of ice cream that we can get today at the corner store. And so today, in Chabonau, you can get things that the king of France, who had more money than you will ever dream of, couldn't get. Wealth is a matter of perspective. Most of us are unbelievably wealthy by the standards of the rest of the world. It's easy to get distracted by the bills and the last thing that you broke, that broke in your house that you had to fix and you weren't planning on. I get it. Literally, on New Year's Day, my stove went out with a turkey in it. That was not in the plan. That was not in the budget. And I found out, guess what? In the 13 years since I bought a stove, they got more expensive. And, you know... I understand those stresses about money, but I also recognize that even my 1,600-square-foot ranch is more than most people in the world have. I have two cars, and I don't ever worry about food. I know that my insurance coverage is way better than I sometimes think because I just had to replace insulin yesterday, and I heard what my insurance saved me if I hadn't had it. And in lots of really important ways, I'm rich. And I don't ever think about it that way. So here's how I want us to approach this passage today. Assume that Paul is talking to us. That he's talking to you. 
assume that you're rich because the principle at stake here is crucial. And even if you don't really think you fit into that category, try it. And even if you don't, there's going to be something here for you. There were rich Christians at the church in Ephesus where Timothy was ministering. It wasn't impossible to be rich and be a Christian in the first century, and it's not now. And we need to remember that. But there are risks. There are risks of wealth. And we don't tend to think of wealth in those terms, right? Because wealth eliminates risk, right? If you are wealthy, you have to worry about less. But Paul says, not so fast. And I think that common sense tells us the same. You see, when you have money, it's not that you have less things to worry about, it's that you have different things to worry about. Okay? Now, I want to be very clear. There is very real poverty in the world, and right here in the United States. There are lots of kids who go to school every day and don't have food to eat at home. Where summers are difficult because at least when they were in school, they got a free lunch. And this is real, and I don't want to minimize that fact. My wife works at a Title I school in North Aurora. And that means that a high percentage of those students are at risk of failure or are at or near the poverty line. In fact, in order for a school to qualify for Title I funds, 40% of the students have to get free or reduced lunches. Now think about that. 40%. I've heard some disturbing stories from my wife. And as an elder, I've helped make decisions about benevolence funds. And I get that poverty is real, even here in the United States. And I don't want to diminish that. And it would be wrong for us to do that. But today, I want us to think about the rest of us. And what our world is like and what our responsibilities are. Because Paul makes something very clear about the rich right up front. They are rich in this present world. That's what he says. And the message of Christianity, the message we've heard this morning in songs and in communion and in the passages that were read, they all point to one thing. This world isn't all there is. It's important, but it's not all there is. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples. And he says this in verses 28 to 31. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. What's the point? What is Jesus saying? This world matters. And God is clearly concerned about the things of this world and for us, as Jesus says. But this world isn't all there is. And our wealth, it's of this world. 
And we need to remember that as we go in. Paul says in our passage today that there is a particular sin that wealthy people are tempted by. And that's pride. You see, he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Arrogance there is a kind of pride. And, you know, I really don't have to explain this. We all know what it is, right? It's that person who has money and knows they have money and looks down at the little people because of it. We all know that. But I think there's a reason why it's the first characteristic that Paul gives us. I think it's a universal tendency. And it's, it leads me to ask myself, how's my attitude? Do I have a tendency toward arrogance? Of looking down at the people who have less than me? And sometimes it's like sort of this benevolent condescension, right? It's not always like you're feeling like I'm so much better, but oh, those poor people. And you look down upon them. And you feel like, oh, I'm better than them. Instead of, I have advantages that they don't have. And we have this tendency to think in this way. In 1 John 2, 15 to 17, the Apostle John warns believers not to love the world and what it offers. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I want... I need. Look at what I have. Pride of life could very easily in that passage be translated the pride of possessions, of wealth. And we need to be careful because not only do we get arrogant that way, but we we have a misplaced trust in wealth. Paul says, don't be arrogant, but he doesn't stop there. Because the second part of that command is don't put your trust in wealth, which is uncertain. It's misplaced trust because, as we've already seen, our wealth is of this world. And John, in the passage I just mentioned, in verse 17, says, the world and its desires pass away. I like the way the NLT puts it. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. It won't last. Secondly, even in the here and now, wealth is uncertain. It's not just that it's only in this world, but right now, in this world, it's uncertain. And we know it. Wealth is fickle. Fortunes can be won and lost in the blink of an eye, in the snapping of a finger. And and we saw, actually, an amazing illustration of this in our economy just over a week ago. Okay, at the risk of stereotyping, old people use Facebook, middle-aged people use Twitter, and young people use Snapchat. On Wednesday, February 21st, Kylie Jenner, I think the youngest of the Kardashian clan, tweeted this. Okay, so I just blew my young people don't use Twitter theory. But she tweeted, so does anyone else not open Snapchat anymore? Or is it just me? Ugh, this is so sad. 
Snapchat had been having a bit of a hard week. They had had a redesign in their interface, and the city downgraded their stock on Tuesday. But it was after Wednesday's tweet by Kylie Jenner that the floor dropped, because on Thursday, the stock dropped 8%, all because of a tweet by a 20-year-old who is famous for being famous. Wealth is fickle, right here and right now. It's not a firm foundation. It's nice to have. I think we could all agree that it is very nice to have. But it's a mistake for anyone to build their lives on it. Proverbs 23.5 says, Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. And we heard this morning already, Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart will be also. Earlier in 1 Timothy 6, in verses 6 to 10, Paul dealt with the flip side of the equation. Not the wealthy, but the people who wanted to be wealthy, right? The ones that wanted to be rich. And in verse 7, he reminds us that we don't bring anything into the world, and we're certainly not bringing anything out. And then we look at verses 9 and 10. And this is what he says in verses 9 and 10. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Love of money, of wealth, is a trap. It can't provide the firm foundation that we want, and it's likely to drag us away in a direction that we didn't want and certainly shouldn't want to go in. Which leads us to the transition in Paul's command. If we're not to trust in uncertain wealth, if we are to store apart for ourselves treasures in heaven, how do we recognize real wealth? Paul commands the people in Ephesus to put their hope in God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. I see in this transition point three things regarding real wealth that we need to remember. First is its source. The first thing that we need to realize is that real wealth is not about what we do or the family we come from or are born into. It's not about our circumstances or our capabilities. It is in God. God is our provider, the source of true wealth. And and note that Paul uses the term hope on both sides of this command, right? We can put our hope in wealth, or we can put our hope in God. And hope is a theme that Paul uses throughout 1 Timothy. And he uses it in what is known as the perfect tense. Now, we don't have this tense in English. It's in Greek. 
Okay? And it conveys something important. It describes an action from the past that was brought to completion and whose effects are felt in the present. Okay? So putting our hope in God then is not, oh, I hope this happens, or I hope I win the lottery so I don't have to go to work tomorrow. No, it's a firm expectancy in God because of all that he has already done. Flip the page back for a minute and look at 1 Timothy verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 10. And he says in that verse, This is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. And then look at verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 5. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and ask God for help. In each case, the tense is the same. The circumstances are different. But in every case, the source of hope is God. And when, and as we saw in communion, as we talked about in the songs earlier, when we become Christians, we put our hope in God, in what Christ has done, has already accomplished, and it continues to impact our lives in the here and now. It has been completed. It continues to have an effect. That is the way a Christian thinks, the way a Christian lives. That is what being a Christian means. Our hope is in God. In good circumstances and bad circumstances. No matter what, God is the source of our hope. The source of our wealth. Secondly, the nature of real wealth. It's certainly a spiritual truth. But it's not merely so. If you take a stroll through the Old Testament... You're going to find story after story, proverb upon psalm upon oracle of the prophets that reminds us that God is a God who provides in the here and now. We see it over and over again, right? In Genesis 3, just after God pronounces the curse on Adam and Eve, he gives them clothing to protect them. In Genesis 9, God confirms his covenant with Noah, making it clear, hey, you can now eat the animals as well as the vegetables and the grains. In the Exodus, God provides a way through the Red Sea and in the wilderness. Even though the people are being punished for not believing and they're being forced to wander for 40 years, God keeps the clothes of the people from wearing out we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 29. And I could go on and on and on throughout the Old Testament, but in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, Paul speaks of God giving the believer what he or she needs. You see, true wealth is both spiritual and physical. It's not so much about the accumulation of stuff as it is about the right relationship and hope that we have in God. What kind of God do we serve? Do we serve a God who doesn't care about us, or a God who cares about us? It doesn't matter if we have a little or a lot. 
But it's all God's anyway, Psalm 50 tells us. You know, this is the, the psalm where we hear about God owning the cattle on a thousand hills. And it's not God bragging. It's saying, hey, I can take care of you. And we already heard from Jesus saying, look, if a sparrow falls, the father knows. Aren't you worth more than that? Paul says in verse 8 of our passage today, that if we have food and clothing, we should be content. So we need to realize that wealth is both spiritual and physical in the here and now and in the world to come. Both matter to God. So what is its purpose? What is the purpose of wealth? And I think maybe we're surprised when we read verse 17. Because Paul says that wealth is given to us by God for our enjoyment. And sometimes we as Christians can act as if we're not supposed to enjoy life. That having a good time is somehow wrong. And I admit, I can have that tendency. I have this bad habit sometimes of being too serious. And it's not right to do. Sometimes I don't stop to enjoy what God provides. And my wife is a great help to me in this regard. Okay, I'm an introvert. The thought of a party can exhaust me. My wife is a party waiting to happen. Okay? And I'm not exaggerating. You can ask my children. But I need those things. And it's not like I don't enjoy myself once I go to a party. I do. And those things are important. And it's good to laugh and enjoy company and good food like ice cream. And even entertainment and sometimes even the silly. God made this world for us to enjoy, to participate in, to explore and to see the wonders of the world and His handiwork. If you can't enjoy a beautiful sunset or the wonder of a new baby, if you can't be moved by a song, maybe not some of the ones I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, but if you get the picture, if those things can't impact you, then you're not treating God's good creation well because he created it for our enjoyment. You know, early on in Christianity, there was a tendency of some Christians, the really spiritual ones, to become monks, to become ascetics. And the idea was that if you self-deprive in an extreme manner, then you're going to achieve some higher spiritual state. And Paul is saying in our passage today, that's not true. He says, enjoy what God has given to us. We need to get our attitude straight. <clears throat> John Stott said this in his commentary in this passage. We are not to exchange materialism for asceticism. On the contrary, God is a generous creator who wants us to appreciate the good gifts of creation if we consider it right to adopt an economic lifestyle is lower than we could command, 
It will be out of solidarity with the poor and not because we judge possession of material things to be wrong in itself. Two dangers then to which the rich are exposed are a false pride, looking down on people less fortunate themselves, and a false security, trusting in the gift instead of the giver. In this way, and you, you need to hear this because this was amazing to hear, wealth can spoil life's two paramount relationships, causing us to forget God and despise our neighbor. And this is what Jesus said is the greatest commandment, right? Love God, love your neighbor. We need to remember where true wealth comes from, and then we need to take on the responsibilities of wealth. And that's where the rubber hits the road, right? First, we have to have risks. And then you have to upend my whole view of wealth. And now you're telling me I have responsibilities in this matter. What kind of a killjoy are you, Paul? And let's be honest, that's the American response, right? We've reduced the American dream to what can I grab? What can I get a hold of? We want to feel secure in our stuff. But Paul has shown us that it's not really so secure anyway. And if we stop to think about it, we know that. We like to talk about rights in our culture. We don't like to talk about responsibilities. And there's this Canadian psychologist, Jordan Peterson, who has made uh, a bit of a name for himself on the Internet lately and the world of social media. He's kind of a star on YouTube. He's the only star that I, on YouTube that I've ever seen who is a star because he gives two-hour lectures on advanced psychology. It's just weird. I've watched a few of them. He's not a Christian, certainly not in any orthodox sense that I can figure out, but he's got a lot of common sense, and he does seem to get to the heart of complex situations. And one of the lectures that I was watching he said something that which is really interesting about this. He's like, we love to have these conversations on rights, but it's only half the conversation because your rights are my responsibilities, technically speaking. Because if you have the right to do something, I have to have the responsibility to allow for that on some level. And so we have to talk about responsibilities. And one of the things that he says is, It's in our responsibilities that we find meaning and purpose. It's not in our rights. And I thought about that, and I think, you know what? He's dead right. And Paul, right here in this passage, tells us what our responsibilities are. God has given us good things. And they're for our enjoyment, but not just for our enjoyment. If we're wealthy, we have a responsibility to do good works. That's what he says in verse 18. Command them to do good, and then he ratchets it up a little bit, to be rich in good deeds. God has given you more than you need. Enjoy it. Use it. Do good with it. That's what Paul says. Be rich in good deeds. Not just rich in the stuff of the world, rich in the stuff that matters. Take your wealth and add to it a more important kind of wealth, is essentially. He kind of puts it this way. Do good, but don't just do a little bit of good. You're rich. Put 
it to good use. Think of it as an investment or an exercise. When we invest, it grows. When we exercise, we get stronger. We get more. And Paul uses this term, good works, throughout his letters, and especially in the pastoral epistles, which are First and Second Timothy and Titus. And one commentator puts it, says this, when Paul uses the phrase to describe the phrase good works, to describe the life of faith in terms of activity and response, he regards good deeds as the result of faith and salvation. So there's this direct connection between our salvation that we celebrate in communion and what we do with it. And this commentator goes on to say, the phrase becomes shorthand for describing the whole Christian existence in its observable, the things that we do, dimension. In terms of the fruit produced by authentic faith. When it appears in various practical contexts, 1 Timothy 5.10, it's about family, 6.18, it's about sharing wealth. In Titus 3.14, it's about providing daily necessities. It is simply a corollary of the belief that faith in Christ is intended to produce a manner of existence that applies to every aspect of life. In other words, good works equals living out our faith in a way that lines up with the values and aims of God. And Paul takes it a step further than just do good works. He says to have a generous spirit. Because we all know that we can do good works through gritted teeth. I really don't want to do this, God. But I will because I'm supposed to. Paul says to have a generous heart. Be generous and willing to share. God shares with us because that's who he is. He has a generous heart. He loves us. He genuinely wants our best. And as believers, what are we to do? To be like him. To take on him in who we are. And it's interesting. This word willing to share is a single word in Greek. It's an adjective form of the word that we know as koinonia, fellowship, or communion. And that's what he's saying. Good deeds and a generous spirit. We're to be like God both outside in what we do and inside in who we are. We are made for this. We are, Genesis tells us, in Genesis 1, 26 and 7, created in the image of God. It's our responsibility. And the not really Christian Jordan Peterson got it right. Where do we find our meaning in life? We find it when we are actively being like God. And that's the responsibility we have. But that real meaning is not simply in doing good things. It is in being like in being with God, being in relationship with Him, and He is good. Jesus told us that the greatest commandment was to love God and love others. And it seems that we love God best, not just when we come to church and sing and participate in communion and listen to a sermon, 
as important as those things are, and they are crucial, we love God best when we are in turn loving others. When we live out our faith in real and tangible ways, because as Bill told us, the wrath of God has been satisfied in and through the love of God. Finally, there are rewards for a godly approach to wealth. Paul says that this approach to wealth has rewards. It's not just duty or drudgery. He says first that it provides a firm foundation in verse 19. A firm foundation for the coming age. Sounds really familiar, right? It sounds like that passage that we heard earlier that I I reread again from Matthew 6. Lay up treasures in heaven, which is more important. Treasure now or treasure in eternity? Which is a better foundation for eternity? One built out on living our faith here and now or an uncertain one that can only possibly last as long as we do and likely not that long. There is a payoff to doing good and that's not a bad thing, but we don't get it if that's all we're after. It's not like we're saying, okay, God, I'm going to do the right stuff so you give me, the, so that you give me something later. It's because we are after experiencing true life. And that's what we really want, after all. It's what we're really made for, true life. Paul says to do these things so that we may take hold of the life that is truly life. What is that? True life is life with God. Why do we say that? Because John 1 tells us, That this is who God is. He says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Jesus is life. And so if we want true life, we need to have him. We catch a glimpse of it here in the here and now when we do good works. Because that's who God is. And we can feel it deep in our bones and our souls, and I believe it's hardwired into the human spirit. Because we're created in the image of God. And he delights in doing good for his people. So it feels good when you do good for others. Because that's who God intended for us to be. We are more wealthy than we could possibly know. And we need to see the risk of wealth in the here and now. But we need to recognize real wealth. That it's given to us by God. We need to take the responsibilities that God has given to us. And know that we will reap the rewards of it. And I want to close by reading from John chapter 4, or John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. I want you to think about this as we think about the wealth we have in the here and now and the wealth to come. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My father's house has plenty of room. If it were not so, I would have told you, or would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you there to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In verse 7. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And I think that's a pretty amazing picture of what true wealth, what true life is actually like. 